people are running from a system that is clearly organized by cynical, kind of malevolent types in the financial system. And they're running straight into the arms of a system which is organized by a different group of predators. That's the fear I have with, with crypto. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app, and you know what, they crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tight up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, morning, Peter. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Peter. And good to see you, Matt. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So we'll give a bit of a background to this. Uh, Michael Casey and you had a discussion on Twitter mm-hmm. and uh, agreed to do a discussion uh, about Bitcoin, uh, the idea of you know talk to you about it, see what you think about it. Unfortunately, Michael couldn't make it. Thankfully, uh, Peter van Valkenburg, happy to step in and help us this a morning. Last minute substitute. Last minute substitute. <laughs> Great substitute. Put me in, coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, if you can do it in Congress, you can do it here, man. Oh. I've, by the way, I keep stealing one of your lines. Good. The uh, every, for every illicit transaction you want to be concerned about, there is this transaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't say it as eloquently as you, but... Everything is Creative Commons, so you're free. Thank you. Okay, Matt, just uh, <laughs> just for the audience, because they're, they're, not everyone will know you because it's a Bitcoin audience. Sure, but sure. Let's just give people a bit of your background. Do you what know you do. who I am? I know who you are. I was, al- <laughs> I was already following you. Oh. I was already following you, I think. Uh, you want, so you want me to tell you who I am? Well, just give, give the audience a bit of a background to yeah. who you are, what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm a... Uh, I'm the director of research at a think tank called the uh, American Economic Liberties Project, and I write about the problem of monopoly. Uh, not, I don't do much around crypto or finance. 
I usually write about big tech, um, healthcare systems, uh, lots of problems in our commercial arena. There's a monopoly and cheerleading, lots of weird stuff. Wait, there's and cheerleading monopolies? There's cheerleading monopoly. Tell you about how it works. Um, and, uh, but I did work in Congress during the financial crisis on Dodd-Frank, um, particularly on aspects of that relating to the Federal Reserve. So I have some background in finance, and I wrote a book called Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy that had a lot on uh, the history of finance, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s when it was a far more uh, regulated system. So that's my background. I, I came to, when I looked at crypto, one of the things I noticed is that, um, you know, there, there's, when you have kind of bubbles in an economy, um, usually you have, takes two things to have a financial crisis. And this was true in the 1920s, was true in the 1970s, was it was true in the 2000s, which is you need Florida real estate or Florida scheming and Citibank. And you put those two things together and usually a couple of years later you have a financial crisis. And so when I look at Bitcoin or when I look at cryptocurrency and I see all of this uh, activity and speculative fervor, which I, I very much, I respect the anger at the financial system having worked on the politics of that. But when I see that um, and I see the professionalization of the space and the in increasing amount of activity there, I worry that we're we're headed towards something similar. Not that it that crypto is going to lead to that directly, but that it's a symptom of a, a broader kind of mania in our society. So that's where I come from, and that's why I had that discussion with Michael. And that you know, and I, I'm open minded. I don't know that much about how these systems work, but I'm that's that's where I'm coming from, and that that those are my biases. Can you can you explain the Florida real estate thing? Yeah. So in 1925, there was a. Um, you know, the, when you have a, a speculative fervor, which is largely driven by monetary policy and uh, a lack of constraints on banks, then uh, people start to bet on anything. And so in, in, in the 20s, there was a lot of betting on, on a number of, of different parts of our society, including the stock market. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but it started in, or earlier in the 20s before the, the, the stock market really inflated, there was a lot of investment in Florida real estate because Railroads were coming down to Florida. It was a place where you know you could you could grow things in the winter, um, <laughs> and people started betting. In the the best story is there was this speculative fervor and over real estate in a town called Nettie, and people were just you know in New York were just like buying and selling swaps, swapping lots of land in Nettie, Florida, and it turned out it didn't exist. The town. It was it was it was a completely made up town, <laughs> and um, and then a series of hurricanes hit and destroyed um, what was a lot of what was in Florida. And so there was a, there's a kind of like a, a proto, a crash in the mid twenties that was very much a, a shadow uh, or an, an, um, a premonition for the later crash in 1929. And Citibank then was called National City, was very involved in, um, in both what was happening in Florida and then later on in inflating the stock market bubble of the late twenties. Um, in the 1970s, you had REITs, which are, are uh, financial investments to own and, and operate real estate. Real estate investment trusts. Yeah, real estate investment trusts. They're, they're, um, ba basically, they were somewhat similar the way that they were reg regulated or not regulated in the, in the 70s. And in, in National City or Citibank was very involved in financing them. And you had a crash. And it was a similarly... 
there was uh, unregulated speculation going on for a variety of reasons I can get into if you're interested in that. And then in the mid-2000s, we, you know, sort of, so a lot of us remember that. You had, uh, then now it's called Citigroup, but Citibank, again, very involved in the subprime, inflating the subprime bubble. And Florida was center of, no, not the only place where there was there was a lot of inflated uh, speculation in land, um, but Orlando, Miami were centers of it, as well as Las Vegas, California, a bunch of other places. But though the, the um, effectively Florida has always served as a fulcrum of speculation. <laughs> and then when you bring the banking system to bear on it, that to me, it was just kind of like, oh, this is, I'm not saying it's causal or anything. I'm just I, saying I that this like is something this I, noticed, yeah. I yeah. noticed. I rather right? like this, this like the Florida man theory of bubbles and cycles. Yeah. yeah. No, I grew up in Miami. I love, like, I love Miami. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a place where people do, you know, they, they bet on crazy things. And um, Matt, are you familiar with the W.J. Howey versus SEC case? No. So it's the Supreme Court case that defined investment contract mm -hmm. as a sub-definition of what is a security mm -hmm. for securities disclosure requirements here in the U.S. And this case comes up a lot. I, I, Peter's done probably a whole podcast on it with me and with other lawyers because it's the same framework, judge-made framework for determining whether an investment is a security that gets applied to crypto these days, and uh, you know, was this in the fifties? This decision, yes. So, okay. so the oh, yeah. decision, so, I I yeah. so the decision was in nineteen fifty one or nineteen fifty two. But W. J. Howey was dead, I think, at that point, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pretty sure I'd have to go back and check now that his scheme, which was snowbirds coming down from Massachusetts, tore his orange grove. <laughs> He's like, well, the orange grove is for sale. You could buy a fifth of it and I'll have a contract with you to maintain the oranges and sell them at market for mm. profit. But And you can just reap the returns and stay mm. in my hotel whenever you want to come down. And then, you know, of course, the orange grove was not profitable. But I'm pretty sure this happened in the 20s and 30s and only made its way up to the Supreme Court, at which point the Supreme Court said, look, the securities laws are meant to apply broadly to any investment of money where there's an expectation of profits reliant on a third party. Everyone was reliant on you, Howie, or your estate, whoever were suing mm -hmm. at this point. And so what you did was not a real estate deal. Right. It was a security, should have been registered with the SEC. And, you know, I'm not going to go too deep into securities yeah. law of crypto before Peter has a chance to ask his second question of the interview. But you know, it's, it's yeah. very much the same with something like an ICO, an initial coin mm -hmm. offering, which is a terrible term that should have never come up in the first place because it's sort of like taunting the SEC. Like, it's not an, <laughs> an initial public offering, it's an initial <laughs> coin offering. But you know, there's a sale of a commodity and there's promises also associated with that sale. And the commodity plus the promises, the real estate plus the promises, is a security, should be registered with the SEC, should go through the same investor protection regime that we do for other things. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much securities are going to come up today. So just for context, Peter obviously works at Coin Center. Coin Center don't pick winners. They support and try and educate uh, and, and guide policy with regards to public blockchains. Uh, some are, Bitcoin is not considered a security. Yeah. Well, never had an ICO. Never had an ICO, yeah. All, all the Bitcoins that have ever emerged in the world emerged through someone's hard work mining the blockchain, which is a public good. Yeah, whereas Ethereum is in this kind of gray area where it, it, you know, the consideration was, well, maybe it was a security, but it isn't a security now. It's a bit of a gray area, and then lots of these <laughs> other things are just considered securities. My podcast is entirely Bitcoin-focused, mm. so I don't really have too much of an interest in crypto. And I might share some of your criticisms of crypto. Interestingly enough, I was down in uh, Miami this week, mm -hmm. Basel was on, 
and it was NFT mania, which to me feels very similar to, to what you're talking about. But I, I want to focus more on Bitcoin, but I'm happy to talk about why. But I consider Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally quite separate. Uh, I consider Bitcoin money and I consider cryptocurrencies more like companies, distributed companies, but still companies. Um, and it's an important distinction for me. The only area of crypto I kind of care about is stable coins because they play a role in supporting Bitcoin. So by virtue of that, I kind of have to pay attention to some of these cryptocurrencies. Uh, I'm not hugely interested in NFTs, but I've heard some ideas of things that could be interesting. But I'm myself much more focused on Bitcoin. Uh, but we'll see where the conversation goes. Can we just talk a little bit about 2008 again? So you, uh, did you say you were working in Congress? Yeah, that's yeah. right. In 2009. In 2009. Yeah, so yeah. post the crash. Yeah, late 2008, or early 2009. Right. Uh, so how similar was that to what you were talking about in 1925 then? Oh, it was, I mean... More than 1929, but yeah, it's the same, no, it's the yeah. same thing. Same thing. Yeah. And just my personal interest, because I've tried to research this myself, how much did the repeal of Glass-Steagall play into 2008? I mean, it was foundational. So the, to understanding Glass-Steagall, Glass-Steagall, people think of it as just kind of one law that was repealed in 1999, which separated commercial from investment banking. But really, Glass-Steagall was a whole regime, a way of governing the financial system that kept all parts of finance kind of hived off from one another. So you had commercial banks that did commercial loans. You had investment banks for capital structures. But then you also had thrifts that did mortgages. So commercial banks didn't do mortgages. Mm -hmm. And you had, you know, you didn't really have credit. You didn't have credit cards. Um, they're just the, you know, and, and finance was very localized. And so, you know, you'd go to your, you had a local thrift or saving, they were called savings and loan. You had a, or a, a local commercial bank. And Glass-Steagall was, um, was designed, you know, as a series of laws that were passed. You could call, there was one law that was called the Glass-Steagall Act, but there were a, a series of laws in the, in the early and mid-1930s that were passed that were basically designed to keep the financial system fragmented so that you couldn't have concentrations of financial power. And the most important part of it was something called Regulation Q, which, which um, capped uh, interest paid on deposits. And the reason this, this was sort of the centerpiece of the whole system. And the reason it was important is because prior to the um, implementation of Regulation Q, banks in New York and Chicago could draw all the money in the world to themselves by just paying higher interest on deposits. And then they would go to banks all around the country and say, give us, you know, give us your money, we'll pay you higher interest rates. And then once they would bid up and sort of essentially buy all the hot money, they called it hot money in the country, they would then, you know, they would then lend it. Um, they have to find very high interest rate loans to, to make money on that. They would lend that into the stock market through what were called call loans or margin loans. So you had all the money in the, in the country um, and then a lot globally just flowing into the stock market instead of staying in local communities and supporting underlying economic activity. Mm. So Regulation Q just cut this off and said, We're, you're, there isn't going to be a bidding war for hot money. Um, Regulation Q started getting undermined in the mid-1960s uh, mid and uh, mid-1960s, early 1970s. That's I talked about the REITs. Mm. That was part of the reason people were trying to kind of get around it and the regulators were allowing regulatory arbitrage. They used, um, uh, they used commercial, uh, what, what do you call it? It's been years since I looked at this, but, um, mm -hmm. CDs, uh, certificates, certificates of deposit, deposit, right. And yeah. then, uh, and then Euro dollars. So dollars traded in London. 
all of which the kind of regulator said, well, we're, we're going to look the other way and let you do this. And we'll allow you to, um, to kind of violate Regulation Q. But of course, normal people couldn't access dollars in London and CDs, negotiable CDs were at first only available to people who paid, who had more than a million dollars. And so what was happening is you had a regulated financial system where you couldn't get higher interest rates on your checking account, or actually not on your checking, but your savings account. Checking accounts couldn't get, um, couldn't get interest. It was savings accounts. But the, the wealthy people and corporations could. And this created a lot of friction and resentment where normal people had to get it, had to operate in a regulated, um, a heavily regulated system. And then this kind of elite could, could operate outside of it. And so gradually that created a political tension where they would chip away at the the rules and restrictions. And by the time you get to 1999, where um, Citibank buys travelers, you 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 got rid of so much of that regime. Things like restrictions on inter uh, interstate banking or um, regulation Q that kind of went away in the in the uh, I guess 1980, which led to you know, getting rid of the thrifts like savings and loan banks. They were not allowed. They were only allowed to do mortgages. They weren't allowed to you know, do commercial loans or anything else. And they lifted those in the early 80s and they all went in and bought a bunch of junk bonds, right? That's the, the savings and loan crisis, Michael Milk and all that. So the takedown of Glass-Steagall was a, a gradual process and it was a shift from a publicly regulated system where, you know, you, you've effectively had banks were working under a very strict set of government rules to one where, you know, you effectively had uh, large financial institutions and networks mediating all the capital flows in our society and government playing a very, you know, secondary role, except when they would occasionally step in and, and kind of bail people out. Wow. Okay. Brilliant. Thank, thanks for telling me that. I'm going to have to listen to that back as, again. I've, I've tried to look into this a bunch of times and usually there's like a political bias uh, to why Glass-Steagall was repealed, but it's uh, it's good to hear the full story. Okay, last thing before we start teeing this up, because I think I might have an interesting question for you. Uh, but with regards to monopolies, you say a lot of your work is focused on monopolies. Right. Is that a, uh, are you objecti objectively just reviewing monopolies or are you actually identifying that monopolies are banned and you're against monopolies? Like, what is your work here? Yeah, I'm against monopolies. I'm, okay. I'm not, um, you know, I, I believe that telling the truth is the best way to advocate for something. So okay. I don't, you know, I don't like to, I'm not like a, you know, I'm, I don't try to lie and say, oh, monopolies are bad because of this fake reason. But I, I, I don't, I think monopolies are a threat to human liberty. Okay. Right? And that just, when I see um, the concentration, so this started because of what I saw with, uh, well, started early on in telecom. I was looking at how the, how telecom companies were, were in the mid 2000s were speculating as to how they could control the internet. They never eventually, they never figured out how to do it. But when I saw what happened with the foreclosure crisis and the financial crisis, and I had thought banks and corporations were kind of neutral technocratic institutions run by people who just kind of, you know, they're experts in what they do. And, you know, I was, I was an idiot. And um, <laughs> then the financial crisis happens and all of a sudden, you know, I learned, oh, wait a second, these are political institutions and the rules are very political, right? Actually, political economy is a core part of how we should think about freedom. And um, so then I started to, you know, and then when you like, you work on something called too big to fail banks, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're like, oh, too big to fail. That's an anti-monopoly framework, right? They're too big and they have market power in all sorts of different ways. And then uh, a couple of years later, I started to study 
uh, I read a, a, a book which talked about a law called Robinson Patman, the Robinson-Patman Act, which constrained chain stores in the 1960s, um, or no, sorry, in the 1930s. And the guy who had written Robinson-Patman, it was a guy named Wright Patman, he was the person in the 60s who was trying to hold together Regulation Q and trying to hold together the kind of older regulated banking system. And his, uh, somebody who worked for him was the person who taught me about the financial crisis as it was going on. It was this woman named Jane DeRista who was saying, this market's, no one knew what was going on during the financial crisis. Like lobbyists, the treasury, the Fed, they were all just like, we don't know what's going to happen next. And that's unusual because they usually do know what, what's going on. And um, uh, you have to know where the money is to steal it. Um, but at that point, they didn't, and it was very weird. But Jane did. Jane was like, this market's going to blow up, and then it did, and then that market's going to blow up. And she had all these papers she had written in the 70s and 80s and 90s about opposing bailouts. And I was like, well, how did you talk about the shadow banking system and just all the stuff that we, you know, people in financial uh, markets today understand. But in 2008, it was like people didn't know that this stuff was all dominating our markets, but she did. And I said, how did you know all this? And she said, oh, I worked for this guy, Wright Patman. And he was, uh, you know, he had tried to hold together these kind of guardrails. And when the guardrails got taken off, like I knew where things were going to go off the, you know, I, I knew where, where things were going to fall apart because those guardrails were there for a reason. And then it turns out that Wright Patman not only was the chair of the banking committee from the early 60s to the mid-70s when there was this pivotal moment, but he also had written this law in the 1930s to constrain chain stores, which today it's like Walmart and Amazon, but back then it was... It was A&P that was the equivalent. And I was like, that's really weird. You got this guy who constri- tried to constrain Wall Street and also constrained these, these uh, chain store monopolies. And that's when I learned, oh, there was this whole political tradition, an anti-monopoly tradition, anti-finance, you know, pro people who work for a living, whether it's entrepreneurs or engineers or farmers or whatever. And that's why I kind of learned about this. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And it's a, it's a really interesting first point you made when you refer to why you're anti-monopoly. You're against monopolies because yeah. you believe they're bad for human liberty. Yeah. So thinking in terms of Bitcoin right. is that I think what a lot of Bitcoiners feel is that the government having a monopoly on the creation of money is also bad for human liberty. Would you say that's a fair characterization? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of folks. I, I am a fan of uh, Hayek. Uh, Austrian economist, um, emigrated to the U.S. after World War II, wrote about wrote a lot about human liberty. His perspective was competing currencies would be good. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets to a deeper question about monopoly, which is probably the core of where maybe we disagree. I'm not sure we disagree. Um, I just don't like you. <laughs> but all, the, it's, it's just it's purely personal. There's you, nothing. Did, did you two know each other already? No, no, no. 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 Um, there's, there's just I could just tell though. There's <laughs> centuries of economic debate over the question of monopoly. I don't think you'll find many people who are pro-monopoly. You know, except the monopolists who can profit heavily from that system. Yeah. There's a there's a more fundamental debate I think over the question of natural monopoly and whether it exists. Whether we have in a more deregulated environment, propensities towards high barriers to entry for a commercial enterprise that actually allow someone to prey upon their employees, prey upon their customers, because they have that monopoly power, either as an employer or as a provider of a good. And you know, there's this other perspective that says, actually, in a deregulated environment where you have a lot of innovation, where you have a lot of competing providers for the service, or at the very least where the environment is contestable. There may only be one player, but the startup costs of 
challenging that player when they do something wrong or low enough that they're going to get challenged. That in those conditions, you don't necessarily have as pernicious of a monopoly problem as in conditions of highly regulated industries. And the most highly regulated industry I know is the financial industry. So, you know, when we talk about banks, we're not talking about normal corporations that just somebody, you know, went to the Delaware courthouse and was like, I want to be an LLC. We're talking about a chartered financial institution. It goes back to actually state grants of monopoly charters, back to the VOC or to the to the to the British East Indian Company, you know, these these are organizations where the government says you have the exclusive purview of acting in this space. Maybe we'll add another to compete with you. Maybe we'll add another to compete with you. But we can deny people entry into this particular productive endeavor. And it's in those environments that I think you see the worst monopoly abuses, both to the worker and to the consumer. Uh, you said you got interested in this by looking at the internet um, and telecommunications. Um, large telecommunications companies, some of them, you know, arguably monopolies as far as market power. But I think the reason why net neutrality and the sort of corruption of the internet didn't become as bad as we feared was in large part because of the deregulation of the telecommunications industry in the, in the 90s, a bipartisan effort of Clinton and um, Newt Gingrich and um, Bob Dole in the Senate, actually. And because the internet is this vibrant space where, you know, if you start introducing things like tiered service provision, like you can get Facebook and Netflix, but you can't get somebody's blog, you can't get Peter's podcast, people rebel pretty quickly. Mm. People get angry. And I loved how angry people got over net neutrality. I didn't personally agree that the right solution was to empower the FCC to make sure that the companies behave well. But I liked all that anger because that's exactly what's going to make me cancel my Comcast subscription. And yeah, there's high barriers to entry naturally in the telecommunications standpoint because you know if somebody owns the telephone poles, you can't you, you can keep your competitor out. Like my parents just bought a house in Vermont that's apparently five miles from the nearest Xfinity pole, and so they're just never going to have a competing provider. Um, but at the same time, regulation I think more often than not, and you look at the financial regulatory context imposes further barriers to entry and actually reduces the likelihood that you're going to get competitors and exacerbates the problem of monopoly abuse of consumers and laborers. I actually think uh, Turkey is a great lens for this idea of having uh, uh, competition within with monies um, because right now the Turkish lira is obviously crashing quite heavily. I'm not sure the inflation numbers right now, but I, I'm pretty sure it's over 20%. Uh, the economic policies of Erdogan have completely failed. And at the same time, we've seen record numbers of people in Turkey buying Bitcoin. You can track the numbers, you can see it. And at the same time, Erdogan, Erdogan has gone to war with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and calling them the enemy of the country. And when really it's people just trying to protect their wealth have been trying to exit into Bitcoin. So I think that's a really good lens for why uh, uh, monetary why I believe monetary competition is a good thing. And by the way, I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I don't believe or want the fall of the state. I, I want the state to be better, and I'm a reluctant uh, statist <laughs> who, who's politically homeless, who can't vote, but fears a collapse of the state, what that actually means. If we need to send those disclaimers out too, I'm also not an anarcho-capitalist, yeah. and I think there's a very good role for government in regulating corporations, but it shouldn't be a, um, you're the exclusive corporation allowed to operate in this space, kind of a permission-based system. It should be guardrails. And, yeah. you know, you were talking about guardrails. I, th I think some of those I would certainly agree with. And, and the idea for me of Bitcoin is it is a, it's another check and balance on government. It is... It is something that gives everyone, it's like a decentralized form of money that gives everyone the option to opt out of government money if they believe 
you know, if they're seeing their wealth being inflated away. So that gives you a background as to why I care about Bitcoin. And that's this has been an evolving position over the like over the few years I've been working on this. Of course, Peter, you and I might disagree because I think you should be able to opt out of Bitcoin and opt into some other coin. Well, you do. Uh, no, I believe that. Okay. I mean, anyone. Uh, I believe anyone can buy any. You just coin. keep the podcast Bitcoin. I keep because, it Bitcoin, and, and that's fair. It's the it's the best community, I think. Because I th- <laughs> I think the thing is is what I believe is that I think they're doing different things. Yeah, and I uh, you know, and I believe Bitcoin is the only one which is meaningfully decentralized enough to be resistant to state attack. I think it's the only one. I, that's plausible. Can you explain that to me? Because I'm not. I don't know. I, I'm just curious what that means. What resistant to state attack and why Bitcoin is the only. Yeah. So there's a really good paper that was written recently by Alan Farrington and somebody else, and I'll share it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember to send that to you. And they talked about this. Um, so one of the big uh, wars in Bitcoin happened in 2017. It's called the Fork Wars. Uh, Bitcoin. The easiest way to kind of explain it is nodes are essentially the the soul of Bitcoin. Nodes. You can operate a node. I can operate a node, and we all agree on. Cons- we all come to consensus on the transactions within the blockchain. If I get any of this wrong, you you correct me. <laughs> but essentially, we want anyone to be able to run a node. A node gives you a full copy of the blockchain, so you can have it. Jeremy can have it. Peter can have it, Niraj can have it. We can all have this copy of the blockchain. It's an inherently anti-monopoly technology in that yeah. sense. Is that the networks are designed to be permissionless and censorship resistant. So nobody in the loop has the power to fully occupy the, the, the technology and, and, and dictate who can and cannot use it. Yeah. Uh, and the, the total size of the blockchain, I'm not sure at the moment, it's four to 500, say, gigabytes. But most people can therefore set up a node with a Raspberry Pi and a SSD drive of you know a terabyte drive, and they can operate a node. Now the big war that happened was wanting to get more transaction throughput into the blockchain. It's limited to about one megabyte. Now the block weight is now four megabytes, but we don't we don't need to get into the difference. The idea was, do we want bigger blocks? So you, you know the Bitcoin is a blockchain. Do we want the blocks to be bigger? So one megabyte block means you're, you're really hard capped at seven transactions per second globally, which is nothing compared to what credit card authorizations are like globally. And really, yeah. in, in practice, it was more like three transactions per second with network latency. Yeah. And so there were a group of people who wanted to increase the size of the blockchain, maybe to two megabytes or four megabytes. But what that would have meant is the blockchain itself would have grown bigger. And naturally, because of that, maybe less people would, would have been able to run a node and therefore, it would have been less decentralized. So we want as many. I mean, decentralized. There's lots of different measures of decentralization in Bitcoin. Bitcoin. How how decentralized are the developers? How decentralized are, are the miners? Um, but the nodes are what really decentralize the blo- decentralizes the blockchain to as many people as possible. So we want to keep the blocks the blockchain as small as possible. So it's decentralized as maximally possible. And the, the, along with this is the notion that a lot of people in the in the anti-expand the block size camp had, which I think is proving correct, that you can scale without increasing that data size. You can bundle more transactions into that small amount of size and still allow this to be a very low cost and, and affordable solution for people to send money abroad. It's 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 hard to get there. Mm-hmm. We're working on it, but but we don't need to increase the size of the block because, as Peter said, that creates this existential risk where you create centralization in the core functionality of keeping the record of transactions, which is exactly that monopoly power, which could either be co-opted by the wrong government, say, the Communist Party of China, to block transactions from dissidents within their borders, or by just a major corporation. You know, this is not left or right. This is The problem is aggregate power, whether it's government power or corporate power. And so with that, we have 
a very, I think is what, a, what I would say is a meaningfully decentralized blockchain here with Bitcoin. Now, there are crypto people who will say decentralization is a spectrum. Crypto, crypto means hidden. Yeah, in the Latin root, so it? or it's the Greek root, I think. So you're just saying hidden people are saying. <laughs> so they will refer to de decentralization as a spectrum, and I think that is an excuse for something that isn't as decentralized as Bitcoin. So let's use Ethereum as a uh, to compare to Bitcoin. You know, Ethereum has blocks that are every I don't know, was it two two seconds or something ridiculous? The last uh, I checked, it was fifteen. Was fifteen seconds, and it has lots of smart contracts running on it. Loads of stuff going on it. And the total full archival node is multiple terabytes, I think. I think it's like nine terabytes. Now, there are other versions of nodes you can run. But strictly speaking, a lot of the large nodes are run out of data centers. So the question Alan Farrington put to them, if you had a government that wanted to switch off this blockchain, are there enough people you could go and threaten with jail to be put into jail if they didn't switch off Ethereum? Uh, yes, there are. It would be, you know, you know, I'm not saying it'd be easy, but it probably could be closed down. It probably isn't resistant to that kind of state attack. Certainly a coordinated global state attack. A coordinated global state attack on Bitcoin to switch off, get people to turn off their nodes is close to impossible. Now you can make it difficult for people and you can make it, uh, you could bring in regulations in, in countries to make it, you know, arduous to buy Bitcoin, etc. But Bitcoin is the most resistant to state attack of all, I would say, of all uh, of these cryptocurrencies, and by some margin, there will be people listening who completely disagree and have completely different arguments. But and usually, that, they're that's selling what's a bag. cool about this space. Yeah. Is it's 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 an innovative innovation story about creating systems that are resistant to centralized control. Why? Why? What's the role of stable coins? Like, why do you need them? So interestingly, I have never owned a stablecoin and used them. I, I've, a couple of times I've got them as like an interest in an interest account, but I've never bought them. But originally what happened was in terms of people, uh, uh, the early Bitcoin exchanges had, had difficulty getting banking services. Just really difficult, but yeah, people. There's your monopoly problem for you. Yeah, <laughs> people you, who own the, the the existing rails don't usually want to welcome uh, potential new entrants and won't even give them accounts to pay their employees, let alone connection to the payment system. I mean, there were times where people were running exchanges would be taking money in PayPal or bags of cash and then distributing the Bitcoin. But there were the people who wanted to trade Bitcoin on an exchange. They wanted to go into Bitcoin and out of Bitcoin. So really this is, I think Tether was the first, probably the first. It was originally on the Bitcoin blockchain actually on Omni. But that was created to allow people on an exchange to trade in and out of Bitcoin. So because they couldn't have banking services and they couldn't hold uh, pounds or dollars, they would convert their pounds or dollars to this synthetic dollar, this Tether. And you could, in your exchange, you would could essentially have two balances, a Tether balance and a Bitcoin balance. And you could buy and sell Bitcoin in and out of the Tether. That was really what it was originally designed and for. And then you could buy dollars with the tether? I mean, what you would do, I guess you would, I mean, I don't know the full run, uh, full operations of the early accounts, but I assume you would make a deposit to a some account somewhere and, that, and then you would be credited and credited with tether. Yeah, and it's important to so note tether, that, So tether then links to the banking yeah, system. It's yes. important okay. to note that, that stable coins are not cryptocurrencies. They, they yeah. have sprung up to fill a market niche that a lot of folks saw as far as difficulties of being onboarded onto cryptocurrencies because the legacy payment system is not interested in making those connections, especially in parts of the world like East Asia, for example, where there is tight control of capital controls uh, for countries and things like this. And so you know, this filled a need. 
But crypt- cryptocurrencies are fundamentally different, right? So a stablecoin is backed. There's somebody who's promising that they're holding the dollar you gave them and they gave you a token and they'll hold that dollar in a, in a cash-like instrument, something low risk and, and, and liquid. Now, that is a system fully based on trust and fully based on a trusted third party who should probably be regulated. And in many cases, stablecoin issuers are not regulated and could abuse that trust very easily. So that contrasts with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's monetary policy is not set by a person. It's not set by anything except rules in the protocol. And if you want to create a new block on the blockchain, you want to participate in this validation, you can give yourself a reward of some of the new Bitcoins that are entering circulation. You cannot give yourself an outsized reward. The rest of the network will, can, will treat you as an attacker can you and ignore get, you. Can you get in and out of Bitcoin now without going through Tether? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. a lot easier now. There's... And, and I just want to point out, you could do that years ago as well if you were lucky enough to live in a country like the U.S. that has strong rule of law and decent regulation of financial institutions. So... Coinbase and Kraken and some of the other U.S.-based exchanges have been licensed money transmitters for a long time and were able to make connections to the U.S. banking system. So you could just connect your bank account and buy Bitcoin without going through some kind of weird stablecoin relationship. And when stablecoins became more popular, we saw some of these U.S.-based regulated exchanges, New York State trust chartered exchanges, maybe even a federally chartered bank soon, are thinking of issuing these stablecoins. And we have some of them now. We have USDC, which is issued by Circle and Coinbase, which are state money transmission licensed entities. We have Paxos, which was issued by a New York uh, Department of Financial Services trust chartered institution. And here you have minimum capital controls. You have um, permissible investment requirements. These things need to be truly cash-like. You can't just, you know, put these into But Tether's not like that. No. Uh, You know, Tether... Tether's the biggest one, right? Yeah. Tether, uh, yeah, yeah. Last I checked, yeah. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. 
Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And do you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Another just side point, interesting conversation I had with Nick Carter the other day that you might find interesting is that uh, stablecoins have become their whole other thing that people are using outside of Bitcoin now. They've just become a, a digital dollar that you can move quicker and freer around the world. And they've actually served as a lifeline for people in living into certain regimes, maybe Examples would be again Turkey again or Lebanon, where you know people want access to the dollar. A bit like when you go to Cambodia, um, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. But when I was there, people wanted the dollar, even though you, you I can't remember what the local currency is, but they wanted the dollar. Well, in places like Turkey, people may actually want the dollar now instead of the Turkish lira because it's collapsing. We talked about this idea of, you know, when a country like El Salvador dollarized, it's a centralized process, but you could essentially have a decentralized. Uh, bottom-up approach to dollarizing a country as a currency fails. Yeah, I would caution making overbroad claims there because, again, all of the major stable coins do rely on a trusted institution still. So are they oh, censorship no, I, resistant? Yeah. Probably not. Can you always trust that the person issuing is keeping um, keeping the customer's reserves safe and in you know low-risk investments? Maybe not. Um, and so... You know, but do you trust that more than the Turkish lira? Yeah, so so that's always the calculus. Yeah. And you know, you know, this is uh, this is good. Why, why, I, I want to say, Matt, why, that why, this why, is good faith innovation. Um, why, some why, of these folks. Sorry, just, sorry, just, just, let, just let me finish my point, and then you can ask a question. A lot of these folks are here to make a buck, maybe. But foundationally, the goal here is to build systems that work for people who've been let behind. And so that may mean you have to use Bitcoin because maybe there's literally no financial institution in your country. Now, the trade-off there is volatility, because it's just a fact that Bitcoin is a commodity money. It's, it's got a fixed supply, and so shifts in demand will cause radical shifts in the price. Actually happened this morning this as morning, we're recording yeah. this. And that, that is something that I think like people in wealthy countries can maybe tolerate, and that's okay to some extent. Um, but you know, it's, 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 it's hard to argue that this is a great solution for people in parts of the world where they can't afford to lose money. And so there was this goal, can we have censorship-resistant, permissionless cryptocurrency-like instruments that maintain stable value? And the answer to that is kinda, because we can, we can have institutions that back these, but then we reintroduce trust. 
And then there's this whole other area of endeavor, which we won't get into too much because it's not so much in the Bitcoin space, it's more in the Ethereum space. Can we use algorithmic means to actually, you know, have a smart contract, a, a vending machine on a blockchain basically, automatically stabilize the asset so you no longer have to trust a company to do it for you, which of course is all, all, always possible uh, that it's going to fall victim to, to some you know mistake in the way it was coded or some other things. But the point here is not that these are ready-made solutions that are going to do really well for everyone right now. And I would not advise anyone to buy more cryptocurrency or stablecoins than they're willing to lose. The point here is this is a really vibrant space from an innovation standpoint whose main objective is to challenge entrenched monopolists who will not open an account for you if you live in a certain country because they don't feel it's necessary or profitable to service that country. Yeah. So, so let me ask a, a kind of basic question. Mm-hmm. When, when you look at innovation, you know, when I look at innovation, right, if you take the, the transition from sort of mail to email, right, there's, there's a lot of things you can do with email you can't do with mail, right? There's some similarities. Spam. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. all my mail exactly. is spam now. Yeah. And my email is also spam, but uh, analogs. The, the, but the point is, is that they're, they're fundamentally different. You can't, it's not like, Email is a less corrupt form of mail. They're they're different uh, methods and technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what is Bitcoin or or sort of these cryptocurrencies? What can it be used for that you can't do with say a, a idealized, well formed financial system where you can transmit money? So I I, I think I disagree that so. Is email a less corrupt form? Of- no, no, it's not. The point is it's not. It's different. It's well, a different technology. That, that, you can do the, things with email you yeah, can't do with that's mail. That's the point you're making. We right. don't write letters anymore for a reason. And I don't but think- But also you can CC a whole bunch of people yeah. and it's instant. And so email, Matt, I guess I don't you know. made a claim there right. that it's not different. I'm going to challenge that claim that, first with respect to email. That what's not different? That email is less corruptible. No, I didn't say it's less corruptible. I'm saying it's less corruptible, Matt. I'm disagreeing with you. Okay. Because it's an open protocol, the simple mail transfer protocol (SMTP). That, that's not that, that's not you know, that's not my point. I, it, whether it's corruptible is not my point. I'm saying it's it's a different technology than mail. What I'm saying is what I, what I'm getting right, at. Right, is, I just want you to follow me down a road. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be combative here. I'm just saying, look, SMTP is fundamentally different than traditional mail systems, and it's fundamentally different because it's this mathematical protocol that has an open specification. Anyone can learn it, learn to read it, look at it, use it. And that means anyone can start their own email server on their own computer without asking permission from anyone, not even getting an an actual address from a government in order to receive mail, not even trusting a a government-run institution like the, the United States Postal Service or a corporation like UPS. I can simply have a computer and an internet connection and receive mail using email because I can see the SMTP protocol. And more to the point, from an innovation standpoint, any big corporation like Google can also build a version of an email client for people who don't want to build it themselves or run it themselves that might work better. And they can challenge Yahoo, who was the dominant provider before, or AOL, who was the dominant provider before. And all of this can happen without seeking permission from anybody who is the the godhead of the simple mail transfer protocol because it's an open web standard. Bitcoin is an open web standard for financial instruments removing scarce, valuable things, either things that represent value, like a stable coin built on top of a cryptocurrency network, or things that are what themselves value, what, or things what, that are, are themselves value because they're something like commodity money, like a Bitcoin. I, 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 I get a great answer, but I, you, you want to know what is the innovation? What are we what getting? What can you do with, with it that you can't do with other, like... I well, can build my own company that 
helps people use Bitcoin without getting permission from the Fed or from CHAPS or, for, or, or being able to access ACH, I can do that with no permission. Right. But I mean, like, if I want to, you know, CC a bunch of people on an email, I mean, just like you would both acknowledge that email is different than mail. Yeah, right? I think just it's like, supremely better. So different that, yeah. in a very important way. Yeah. It's anti-monopoly. It also is instant, right? I mean, there's just a lot of character. There's a lot of characteristics yeah. about it that are just different than mail. But right? the important, just, the important I don't, one from I don't, an I don't innovation feel like standpoint. I understand. What, I understand what right. you're asking with this. Okay, there's multiple answers for this. Okay, yeah. Let, 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 I'll give. I'll, I'll talk about one example for myself, and then extrapolate that out okay. for a whole nation. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I banked with a uh, Lloyd's Bank in the UK for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Six weeks notice, they closed my bank accounts down. Um, my suspicion is because it's to do with Bitcoin, but mm-hmm. they phoned me up and they wanted to ask me about my transaction history, and I said it's none of your business, and they said why, <laughs> and I said because I'm I'm an adult and I, with two children and. I run a company, I don't need to tell someone in a call center what I'm spending my money on. It's my money. If I've done something wrong, you can ask me something. If you're suspicious, you can ask me something. But I'm not just, I'm not telling you. You know, I don't need this. And so they wrote to me and closed my bank accounts down. Now, I did manage to get another bank account. But even if I hadn't, I operate with a Bitcoin wallet. I'm self-sovereign. So I can take all my income in Bitcoin and I can pay people in Bitcoin. I can also use services whereby if they want to pay me in dollars, I can receive Bitcoin. And if they want to receive dollars, I can pay in Bitcoin and they receive and, and dollars. Peter, when you say that, you mean you actually have the keys to your... Yeah. Your, 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 so this is not him using Coinbase or or one of these companies that issue stablecoins, any of this. This is him using software. And this is my point about SMTP. If you want to be your own email server, you can just use open source software to be your own email server, send and receive mail. No one can stop you. Now we have that for money. But let me let me finish extrapolate this out to El Salvador, a country whereby the seventy percent of the population are not served by the banks. They don't have bank accounts. They don't yeah. have access to bank accounts. But they all have a mobile phone. So every one of them, well, pretty much every one of them can create a Bitcoin wallet. They can accept Bitcoin and they can send Bitcoin. Now listen, it's not ideal. It really isn't ideal for running a business because it's volatile, and that's not ideal. But but it's the early steps for what it could be. You know, this is where we're going. But even better, the best thing I like about Bitcoin more than anything in the world, this is my favorite thing, I can send money instantly with complete and utter finality on that transaction to anyone in the world at any point. So where is this relevant? I went out to Japan to do an interview once. I hired a cameraman like Jeremy here and he came out and filmed it all. We could not find a way to get my bank to send money to his bank. Every way, because it's not like, like in the UK, I just put in a sort code and an account number and an amount and it gets sent. But when it's international, they have different requirements. Or I need an address or a different wiring number. We couldn't get it to work. So in the end, I paid him by Bitcoin. Now, I used the base chain, so that's settled in 10 minutes. But on the Lightning Network, it's instant final settlement at near zero cost, which to me is brilliant. That is one problem with the sovereign money is that if you're trying to send money internationally, it just hasn't evolved to the needs of, of people. You, sometimes you can't get money into a country. Sometimes it takes five days. Sometimes it gets flagged up. PayPal, I've had money held in PayPal for weeks on end. This is instant final settlement, which to me is, is the innovation that we have everywhere else. I can watch Netflix anywhere in the world. I can listen to any song I want anywhere in the world. But with our current banking rails, I can't send money anywhere in the world instantly. So... Do you know M-Pesa in Kenya? Yeah. That, that's like instant money within within the 
you also guys can send it to Uganda. Yeah, but well. it's it's not censorship resistant. It's not free and open. You have to use the particular cellular provider. Right, right. And no, I know, I know. In their yeah. No, no, I know. But I'm just similar saying innovation. It's, it's um, well, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so largely, I mean, it sounds to me like largely your the examples you're bringing up are you know artificial restrictions that are imposed on you by regulated banking systems yep. and and in, inefficient global. Uh, financial transactions. Yeah, I, I think and then the other the other one is yeah. is Turkey, right? Or or countries where the state is weak yes. and people are, you know, they they're or corrupt. That's an ex- mm-hmm. Tur- Turkey's an extreme example. I I would say Lebanon, no. I would say it quoted six point two percent. No, no, even even that, but quoted six point two percent inflation in the U.S., which is really probably ten to fifteen percent. Most people think four point. It's transitory. Transitory <laughs> at four point two percent in the U.K. I think every hardworking individual who goes out and does a day's work, gets paid, and also pays their taxes, deserves to be able to store their wealth across time and space. And that's what Bitcoin does. It allows me to store my wealth across time and space. That's another reason I like it. I am not a, I am not a victim to the mistakes or the, econ- the economic mistakes that any central bank or government mistakes. I am only... My wealth is the, the, the my purchase of power is only influenced by the size of the Bitcoin community. So there's a it just it what it sounds like to me is there's a there's a lack of faith in sovereigns, right? And that's what's that's essentially what's happening. You're like you so. can't you can't trust the U.S. government to maintain the value of the dollar. You can't trust the British government to maintain the value of the pound. You can't trust regulated banking systems to treat you fairly, mm-hmm. transparently. And then all over the world where you have weak or corrupt states, it's even worse, right? And a mass and, invasion of privacy. I think, and a mass invasion I of think, privacy, right? I think, Is that fair? Yeah, but right. well, I would put a gloss on that. I, I don't think can't. I think don't want to be in a position where we must. Yeah, that's fair. I don't, I don't want to be in a position where I must trust my state to be able to have economic liberty. I want to be in a position where I have alternatives. And so, you know, like Peter and I still keep most of our money in banks, I'm quite sure. Not anymore for me. Well, maybe not for Peter. No, I, 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 Peter's I did done well. used to. No, no, I did, I did used to. Now, now I don't. Either um, way, yeah. like, I, I have a Charles Schwab account. I like it very much. I, you know, and I, I don't see the rapid de-dollarization of the United States. I don't think people are going to be paying for um, their, their telephone bill using cryptocurrency. That said, I like that there's an alternative, and I'm very, I'm very interested in there always being these alternatives and these open permissionless systems, which is why I was going back somewhat, um, somewhat incessantly to SMTP as an open protocol are important because we could end up, I don't think we're going to, but we could end up in a situation like China where we have a single party state and where the payment rails themselves are used as a blunt instrument to control the populace and to prevent dissent. So, like, the fact of the matter is if you're a Uyghur in the western part of China and you stop purchasing alcohol and you stop purchasing cigarettes, you're going to end up on a list because all of your purchases were previously, when you were making them for alcohol and tobacco, they were done through WeChat and Alipay. And the CCP gets that information, like, straight into their veins. They give you a social credit score. And they say, this person is probably not a devout Muslim because they're buying these things. And then you stop buying those things, you end up in a re-education camp. We know this as a fact. This power over the payment system is a terrifying power in our digital future, where we make all of our transactions online and through through records. So, so why don't you want de-dollarization? 
Why don't I? Because I like America. Yeah, yeah, but you just said that this is a terrifying power, and you you know, you, what's the? Because I believe in competition. I don't. I, I don't want one thing to replace the other thing. I want options. I have a slightly different view on that as well. In in that, I understand, sympathize with libertarians and with anarcho-capitalists, but I don't believe in the big red button. I don't believe a lot of libertarians actually believe in the big red button. If you could get rid of government instantly and now, would that be a good thing? Because no. <laughs> the, the, the vacuum would be horrific. What I do like, as somebody who previously, previously worked in software and tech, is test and learn, A-B testing and improving things. And what we have now with Bitcoin is an A-B test. But also there's another problem with Bitcoin in that it's uh, due to its inelastic uh, supply, and still being new, it is hyper volatile. It doesn't work as a short term currency. It it, operate, it can operate as a short term currency, but it, it has but a tax, yeah, in and, the form of volatility. And it's not a unit of account. So it, pricing, you know, you, if you were pricing in Bitcoin in your store, you'd be running around changing the prices like they do in Venezuela. But it, it would be up and down. So it's it for me. I like to have my long term wealth stored in Bitcoin, and my short term needs stored in the pound or dollar, which I can use for day-to-day, -day, for my coffee, whatever. Does, does that make, kind of make sense? It does, but I guess, you know, the reason that you have a regulated banking system is to, to actually maintain a sovereign, right? To have a nation state. And the, I, I guess, you know, when you, you called yourself a reluctant statist, mm -hmm. right? Which I, I feel the same way. And, you know, what, what I think you guys are speaking to, and I think what the kind of the, Bitcoin community and some some I think good faith parts of the Bitcoin community is a really legitimate um, recognition that we have a democracy crisis. Yeah, right. You don't trust the sovereign uh, because I think that I have not seen a lot of good decisions coming from our uh, from our government through our democratic systems. Democracy is is weak right now and is not functioning particularly well. In the 1920s, very similar. Periodically, we have this problem. Um, but, you know, a good example, working on financial crisis, and I worked on the Fed, and, like, people at the Fed are snobs, and they're not responsive to what's happening in the real world. They're not r really responsive to our democratic systems, and yet they control our money, right? And I think that's a huge problem. But is the right way to address that problem? And I, and I think you could see that across the board, right? If... Let's say you were the CCP were to take over the United States to take your example of Uyghurs, and you had like a, a, a Bitcoin, and you let's say you, you weren't they weren't able to use the payment system, they'd be able to identify anyone they want using all of the Facial mass data leakage yeah. and and just this is a heavily um, this is a heavily surveilled and regulated society. It's yeah. a society, and every society is. I mean, there's no such thing as deregulation. It's just who makes the rules. You know, Mark Zuckerberg chooses to make our privacy. Mark Zuckerberg makes our privacy rules, at least for a large group of the a large number of the population that use social media. It's why everybody's freaking out about how he who he chooses to allow right. to speak on his platforms. And it's, it's why we should decentralize social media like we're doing with money. It, the 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 um, Point is that there's there's um, we have a serious democracy problem, the opioid crisis. Nobody went to jail for that, and then we know that the Sackler family is probably responsible for large numbers of people dying of of heroin overdoses. You know, nobody on Wall Street went to jail for what was obviously systemic fraud. 
you can see this over and over. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Zuckerberg, when you look at what he's done in terms of lying to advertisers, and I know advertising is kind of like, that's what advertising is, is deceiving people. I don't mean to telling ads. I mean, all the metrics are kind of silly, but if they were explicitly lying about it, there's a, just a tremendous amount of fraud there and there's no accountability. And you see this, we, the problem we have is there is no rule of law applied to the powerful. And that is systemic and it's been going on probably, I don't know, for at, it got really bad, I think, in the mid-2000s. I think um, it got really bad throughout the 20th century because the technologies that changed the world were, were amenable to people who are in a centralized just, position just, of power. So, so I and think we're, that the, we're, the, we're fixing that mistake. The crisis, of the financial crisis, I think, where the, the became, it may, I, you might be right, but like during the financial crisis, it became explicit, oh, right? Yeah. It was like the, the, the people who caused the problem get bailed out and not only yeah. do they get bailed out, but then they, the Dodd-Frank was about concentrating banking power you, into five banks. Do you know what's right? in the first block of the Bitcoin blockchain? I, yeah, this, is, this a, is really interesting. A message from the, we still don't know who he, she, or yeah. they were, from Satoshi, which says, uh, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for big banks, right? From the Times. Yep, from the Times of London. And it was used, you know how when, like, in a lot of right. um, crime dramas, you want to prove that your photo was taken at a certain time, so you include a, a, a headline? Right. So it, it's it's like that. It's well, we're just saying this first block of the blockchain came this day that the Times published this story, but it's obvious that the story that was chosen was chosen for a very political purpose or for, for, for right. A, for and a, I think you're, that's, purpose, you're on a yeah. path. So where, right. where are you so, taking us? So you know, and you see this everywhere. It's not just in the uh, the monetary space. You know, the there there is a powerful disillusionment with our political institutions yeah. and a loss of faith in democracy because democracy isn't delivering. And I, I think you can take one of two paths. You can either say, let's figure out a way to make our democratic institutions work, All right? Let's actually do that. Let's figure out how to rewrite the laws, how to elect different people to our positions of, of authority, change, use the systems yeah. that have been in place for hundreds of years to self-govern, or yeah, what's the other path? you can say, weaken the state, get rid of, undermine these democratic institutions. Ah. And my fear is that, and, and, and there's a lot of, um, I think the crypto, you know, the culture of crypto, you've got both sentiments in there. You've got a, a broad disillusionment from our democratic society, which I think everybody feels, mm -hmm. right? That's why Donald Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have a lot of really cynical types who recognize an opportunity to scam large numbers of people that are angry. I mean, you saw this with GameStop, right? You see this with like, people are just like, well, you know what? We need equal access to cheating. That's what the GameStop thing was, was about, yeah. you know? And like, I, I feel sympathy with that because it's crazy that hedge funds get, you know, they get to have six times leverage and ordinary people in, in these in investments only get you know, two times, but they were in fact investing with Robinhood, which is, you know, paying, you know, all the order flow stuff. I mean, all of that is a scam. So it's, it, what's happening is people are running from a system that is clearly organized by um, uh, cynical kind of malevolent types in the financial system. And they're running straight into the arms of a so, system which is organized by a different group of predators. And so, that's what I so see. With, that's what I see with with yeah. with crypto. That's the fear I have with with crypto. But I, you talk like a Bitcoiner. I would propose to you. I do. I do <laughs> because I recognize that people are really angry with 
existing institutions. Yeah. You see this with schools. You see this like all over the place. It's like now, Matt, the, the, the you know our schools are people are really angry and frustrated with our schools, and so they say, well, we need we need charter schools. We need to have school choice, and it's like, but then it just kind of like. It, it, what you're doing is you're dumping a bunch of people into schools that don't work for them. It's like some things are common collective problems that we actually have to solve so, com- collectively. So, Matt, my question for you is: politics. My, is there an iron law that you're uncovering here that you either work within the system or you work against the system? Because I think it's a false dichotomy, and I think Bitcoin shows that very well with respect to America and American policy towards cryptocurrencies. Our country is built with the notion that government can solve collective action problems and the private sector can can solve collective action problems. And we are at our best as Americans when we have both approaches simultaneously. And so you look at Bitcoin, it's not an unregulated space in this country. My job has been educating people in government about Bitcoin since 2015. And I can tell you, you know, we've got We've got commodities regulations on the books. We've got securities regulation on the books for the sake of ICOs. We've got state money transmission licensing for the big companies where people go to buy Bitcoin from someone who's trusted. We've got anti-money laundering regulations. There's Bitcoin addresses on the OFAC sanctions list. There's all kinds of regulations that apply. And I'm not saying that as I'm complaining. In fact, I think it's a great story of American ingenuity and American consumer protection and investor protection and anti-money laundering policy. We can have these systems that create new open alternatives to things like the fairly corrupt banking system, and we can apply sensible guardrails to them. There are lots of people in the Bitcoin community. I don't want to quote Nixon because I don't like Nixon so much, but there's a vast silent majority of Bitcoiners who are not anarchists, who may be cynical about democracy, but don't want to see it go away and want to see open market competition, anti-monopoly competition, which as Peter said, you talk like a Bitcoiner, that is still happening in a regulated sphere that still puts guardrails in place. We have some gaps. I'm not saying our regulatory system is perfect right now, but I do think it's disingenuous to claim that there's only two paths here and Bitcoin represents the dark side. So, so the, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of Hobbesian Leviathan type. Like I, you know, you-, you You're gonna need to explain that. Iasinomnia, war of all against all. That's right, that's right. So Hobbes was a- um, Cynic. I think he's kind of the founder. No, I don't know. I, I actually sort of, am a Hobbesian as well, so we share that. There we go. Um, you know, the, the, he's sort of the founder of the idea of the. I think the nation state. Maybe you think you'd kind of argue that he he was a, a writer uh, who wrote in the 1600s during the uh, English Civil War, which was uh, and the Thirty Years' War, I guess, which was these were sort of awful periods in European history, and what he was saying. Uh, he wrote a book called Leviathan, which is his most famous work. And what he said is that um, without a sovereign, right, that is in control and sets the rules, that what will happen is you will have the war of all against all. This yeah. kind of like a, a Jacobin-style French Revolution. Mad Max. Um, Mad Max, right? Yeah. Right. Think think of the prisoner's dilemma. I don't right. want this. No, dude, right. So, think of so the he, prisoner's he dilemma. Every, in, everyone cheats, so you need to create incentives for people to cooperate so we can have a productive society. Yeah, so yeah. He, what, he, what he said is it doesn't matter what kind of society you have, it does, or it doesn't matter what kind of government you have. You could have a, a monarchy, an absolute monarchy, or a democracy, or whatever. You just need someone setting the rules, and then you could live in, yeah. in basically in peace. Find if someone the, is find the, the sovereign rules. and obey. Otherwise, we're going to have this endless war. Right, and 
out of that came all, mo- like all basically all of our political traditions or mi- most of our political traditions. And you then I mean, you you have like to Marx- be fair, some of his biggest critics are also like directly cited in the Constitution, like Locke and and others. I mean, you know, there, there, so, that's so, right. There so there was, of, there was there debate all, about this. There are a lot of people <laughs> who who you know criticized him from within the framework that he set but up. But his starting pistol, I would he, absolutely agree, is yeah, one, of the, he, one of the most clarion calls for understanding why we have these things called sovereigns and states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so okay. and I think the basic, um, you know, there are, you know, you, when I look at, at a, um, I think we have a lot of problems in our, our society that have to do with many things beyond the payment system. Like consolidation cool. is a, is a, is a problem across the board. 75% of more industries have gotten more consolidated in the last 20 years. One of the things you said, Peter, is that no, you, you don't think anybody is in favor of monopoly. But the Supreme Court in Trinco, you know, said monopoly is a key part of the free enterprise system, the acquisition of monopoly power. So it's not, you know, you do have substantial amounts of, of, uh, of social problems that emerge and you need a powerful sovereign to deal with that. And that sovereign, we are honored to live in a society or set of societies where we actually have some democratic levers. And yeah. I think it's incumbent upon our incumbent incumbent upon us to make those democracy, those democratic yes. levers work. Now, Matt, and that's and that's I think when what I fear again is that is that building out an alternative. I mean, I, I see what Gary Gensler is trying to do. What he's trying to do is kind of bring crypto into the regulated, into a regulated space, stop the you know, money laundering, which is a big part of what's going on here. Well, let's be clear. Well, we no, 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 hold on. I need to correct yeah. that. Gary Gensler's at the SEC. They focus on investor protection. Money laundering is FinCEN, a division of Treasury, which I has understand. had rules in place since 2013 for exchanges that file suspicious activity reports, currency transaction reports, and as I said, there are Bitcoin addresses on the OFAC list. So I understand. I understand that. But yeah, yeah. but what what when you talk about uh, what is useful in Turkey? Right, that's effectively money laundering. It's just money laundering. No, no, no. I, I'm just, I'm disagreeing with the, your narrow point that the, Gary Gensler is the regulator who's bringing this into the regulated sphere. In the case of anti money laundering, it was brought into the regulatory sphere in 2013. How is it money laundering in Turkey to just own a different currency? It, if, if the, if, um, well, no. Let's let's have a different example. The Uyghur in Western China who wants to access the payment system after they've been systematically debanked because they're a threat to the stability of the regime, when they use currencies or cash, and they're not supposed to, say they're banned from travel on high-speed rail, which over a million people in China are, when they buy a ticket by using some secret payment means or some under-the-table means, they're basically committing a financial crime in China. That's, That's right. That's yes. right. Okay, but so what I don't is, know what, what your you, point is. I yeah, mean, What is your like, fear? What is your fear? The the fear is that instead, what these systems are for is they are for undermining the state. No, right? no, 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 no. They are a check on the state. Yeah. We we ambition counter ambition to go back to old political theory that founded America. We want checks and balances, and those are not just internal checks and balances. If all people were angels, governments would not be necessary. Think of it like the separation of government from the judiciary. Right. That's an important foundation. But who controls? You know these these. You know, I I don't have a problem. Who controlled with, the founding fathers? I, who <laughs> controls? You know, the judiciary presumably. You know, you you are appointed and confirmed. Yep. And there are, are mechanisms for impeachment. It's part of a democratic. It's part of a democratic system. Yes. Whereas these, you know, when you're when you're creating monetary systems that sit outside of 
a sovereign, you are th- those are not th- th- yes, there's the, no th- sovereigns no don't setting... only provide public goods by direct provision of public goods. They set up a rule of law which allows private entities to provide public goods. This is uh, you you talk about Hobbes. My interpretation of Hobbes follows Michael Oakeshott's theory of Hobbes, which is yes, you should find the sovereign, but the sovereign is this diffuse organism that's created by people interacting with other people. And that is that is a that is an organism that is made possible by common expectations and common grounding about what the rules that will apply to commercial contracts will be, property laws, you know, tort laws, all of these things. There's a lot of emergent beauty there that is from the government because the government mediates those private interactions, but it's a lot from the private sector too. Even though there's nobody in government saying, you are allowed to build this innovation, you are not allowed to build this innovation, we can still cooperate and build good systems that that fill gaps or challenge entrenched so players. The idea of a smart contract, right? A smart contract <laughs> is, is replacing, it's effectively replacing a legal system. No, right? No, no it no, is no. an alternative. Yeah. In fact, smart contracts are neither smart yeah, nor th- contracts. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're going off because smart contracts aren't really a huge part of Bitcoin just yet. No, no, I know. Well, but, but a multi-sig contract is. I, I know, but but I just I just want to just go back to the other point. You know, uh, one of the one of the problems, I, even though we have the separation with the judiciary, it still has a political sway. The great thing about Bitcoin, you know, fundamental to it, is the monetary policy is two rules. It's just two rules: fixed limit of twenty-one million coins, and a, uh, a, a an issuance rate which halves every four years, and that's it. Uh, there's no political bias in Bitcoin; it's apolitical, but it does have that check and balance on the state. It isn't. I, you know, would I hold all my my money in Bitcoin? No, I I, I need pounds to work. My ideal scenario is that. Bitcoin goes to a more stable growth in price. I don't like the volatility, and I choose to keep a certain amount in pounds, and I keep a certain amount in Bitcoin. That's like my ideal scenario. But the great thing is about Bitcoin is you know, compared to, I mean, you're going to have to help me on this because you're Americans, I'm not, but your uh, Supreme Court always has either a, a Republican or a Democrat sway, right? Is, is it seven judges? I'm a lawyer that has a deep reverence for things like constitutional law, and I actually think that the the politicization of the court is an over-discussed topic, okay, and that fine. even these justices who do have political opinions do a decent job, both on the left and right, divorcing themselves from their great. politics when they're interpreting the law. Okay, great. And that's brilliant. But, but I'll we just have, say but there's, we have there's to... nine, and they're, part, they're political hacks yeah, okay. to wear robes. But, but, but with Bitcoin, we have, it, is, it is a separation of money and state, but there's no political bias, and it transitions from uh, it transitions from government to government, completely apolitical. So, so Peter, I disagree there. I think oh, there's you? a political bias inherent in Bitcoin. Oh, okay. I don't think it's a bad one. I okay. think there's political biases in everything. Okay. The question is whether you have clear rules and systems of determined expectations to sort of make it evident when people are abusing the, abusing power and and trying to enforce their biases. So. Like there's an idea behind Bitcoin, but no one forces you to use Bitcoin. You can use something else. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. so there's a deeply political idea within Bitcoin. I don't think it's an anarchist destroy the state idea. I think it's just a sound money idea, which plenty of people in government actually believe in as well. And so, you know, what we want are clear, transparent systems for mediating social interactions that emerge both from the private sector and the public sector, so that we can judge people when they use those systems and say, "You were doing X, Y, and Z. We see you doing X, Y, and Z." Yeah, it's not this opaque system, say like the correspondent banking system, where we don't know the inherent biases of the third bank in the chain when I try to send money to Afghanistan or when I try to send money to China. 
I want a transparent system so we can have an open conversation about our political biases. And I want Bitcoin, and I want Ethereum, and I want a bunch of competitors, and I want the dollar. This is the American ideal. <laughs> we're, we're at your hard limit, by the way. How hard is your hard limit? I've got another 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Okay. I think we should go... Okay, let me put it a different way to you, Matt. What is what is wrong with having Bitcoin? What is your fear that you know of having Bitcoin exist? Uh, I mean, Bitcoin's often compared to gold, right? We haven't we haven't banned gold. People can buy gold right. as that optionality from the dollar, and Peter Schiff encourages people to do that. And anyone can go and buy gold, and they can you know, keep it under their mattress or hold it in a centralized place. So, what is the problem with having Bitcoin as well if it's not there to replace the dollar? Well. It's gold, you know, FD, one of the first things FDR did was he actually took us off the gold standard yep. and actually brought gold into, uh, I think you basically weren't really allowed to own own gold because he wanted to essentially dollarize, make sure that the, the, uh, that the government could control uh, demand in the I assume economy. you disagree with that, though. What FDR did? What FDR yeah. did? No, yeah. no, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Okay. It saved the, the, basically saved the world. Um, the, we had deflation because we were on a gold standard, and there were there were big political fights over it. But it's absolutely essential. Um, that's why we, one of the reasons we had the Great Depression, what Keynes called the barbarous relic of the gold standard. Um, I guess, and Nixon took us off uh, the Bretton Woods systems, which was tethered to gold in 1970, and that I'm I, I'm a little bit more mixed on, but I. I understand what the, what the point of it was. Um, so, so Matt's answer is we don't necessarily need Bitcoin. The government should just seize it like they did gold in the 30s. So here's, I mean, I think the <laughs> weakest, my weakest point is that, you know, Bitcoin can be used for money laundering or all, it's outside of the state and, 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 um, and money is fundamentally a public good that should be organized and controlled by the state. The reason it's a weak point is because Citibank is used for money laundering, yeah, and, yeah. and Deutsche Bank. <laughs> the, the you know all of the large banks are it's billions. You know of it's not like, <laughs> I mean, the the drug where all of that went through the regulated banking system, all of that money and all of you know there's a ton of there's massive amounts of dirty money and huge amounts of tax evasion that goes through legal channels. So when I'm saying, well, we need to have ensure total control for legal channels because rah-rah democracy, like, I mean, you sound like a chump, right? And then you can come in and say, no, we, we need this alternative. Um, and this alternative lets you do it without state, you know, without state oversight, state permission. No one can tell you what to do. And I get why you'd be like, well, Lloyd's started snooping around and and fuck them, right? Like you didn't do anything wrong. And meanwhile, like the big guys get, you know, they mm. they get, you know, please, sir, may I take your coat? That's what the Fed does with the big banks. So I get that. Um, so I, I get why it's like it's a pretty weak argument. At the same time, I just don't see an alternative to restoring our democratic systems, right? If we don't do that. We're just going to go uh, like authoritarian. But can't that's we just do what's going to happen. Can't we do both? And isn't it? Uh, that's my fear. Well, Wait, if, we, if we're not authoritarian with respect to clamping down people's freedom to use alternative modes of money, we will go authoritarian. Well, what what I mean is like is is if we don't have our and just take our regulated system, right? If we continue to allow flows of dirty money or moving outside of the payment system, if we continue to allow Google 
and and Facebook and Aetna CVS or whoever, all of the, the sort of dominant monopolies that control yeah. how we move and, and distribute resources. If we continue to allow that, we will go authoritarian. So and that's how, what's how, happening. How do you stop and so, it? You, you said yourself that most of it happens through banks. I, I don't, no, I mean, I, I think banking is, uh, how I, do you stop I didn't it? say most of it goes through banks. I think- Well, most of it does. 1% of transactions by, so, by so total Google's, value are illicit on the Bitcoin network. 5% according to so, the World so Bank Google's, are illicit in the global economy. You, when, I, when, I, when I look at um, cheerleading, right? Like the way that that's worked or, or what- Big what, cheerleader. It, 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 you know, it is, you know, or, or pharmacy benefits managers who organize what kind of medicine that, that you can buy and they control independent pharmacists. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can look at, at, at meat packers, right, that are constrained, like they're, they're screwing um, consumers because beef prices are really high, but they're also sure. undermining cattle ranchers because they don't have, they've, they've consolidated the number of meatpacking plants. So you, there's only one meatpacking plant usually to sell to. So they become a, a price taker. And that's just pervasive throughout the economy. The way that you have to deal with that is through politics. You have to restore democratic systems of governance over our markets. How? Through politics. But but how through politics? Because yeah, it feels like it's getting worse and worse. Through educating the public. Well, and Matt said it himself by banning through, alternatives like Bitcoin. Like uh, this is this is what you're saying is that the only way to stave off authoritarianism is to have authoritarianism. I, the paradox of liberalism, and this is this is the paradox of of, of liberal of liberal state and of the state itself. And this is this is what I think Hobbes that Hobbes's doubleness is that in order to someone you need to in order to enable freedom you have to have a sovereign that is setting the rules. Like that is yes, and, and representative rules, democracy. Those rules means can be purpose we, neutral. They can allow people to yeah, form agreements to and emerge. Them, set, somebody has to set them and enforce them. And anytime there's rule setting and enforcement, you can just say that's tyranny. And in a sense, it is. But in, in a, that's what the, where the doubleness no, is. No, 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 no. You I think, have it, to I set think it's and tyranny when rules. government sees it as its job to usurp private individuals, building new things, trying new things. That's when government usurps putting the authority of the individual. Jail, what government, in jail what is, government is set up to do is to help people interact. Schopenhauer has this great metaphor about hedgehogs. Hedgehogs are cold at night. They need to huddle together for warmth. But when their spines touch each other, they prick each other and they get hurt. So hedgehogs need to find an organic social contract with each other, wherein they're just far enough apart that they don't prick each other, but just close enough that they stay warm at night. That is the beauty of the rule of law. That is what the state is set to do, is to help us in an emergent bottom-up way come up with the way we can live together in a cold night with sharp spines. It is not the job of the government to say that hedgehogs should be exactly 5.5 inches apart. It's this bottom-up experimentation as the hedgehogs bump into each I, other. That's I, I like that. I like that, Matt. That's a great metaphor. I, 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 I'm going to steal that metaphor. I'm I think steal that's that really good. But, um, you know, and part of that bumping into each other is something like Bitcoin. And, and to, to simply say it needs to be outlawed, I think, shows a, a lack of faith in human endeavor. Do you think that, though? Do you believe it should be outlawed? Do I think it should be outlawed? Um, probably. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. I do. I, I think, but, you know, I, I but guess... But isn't that authoritarian? Well, I don't think so. I, I think that... Not if it's um, through democracy. <laughs> basically, yeah. I mean, I think that, that what you need is a system which is legitimate. Like you need our, the problem we're pointing at, it, the problem I think that everybody feels is that our existing systems of governments lack legitimacy. Like they are not delivering what we need. They are just bossing us around and being obnoxious and difficult. And I think if if you're, at, you're on the, the 
the bad end of the state, you know, you're you're living in an authoritarian state. Um, but at the same time, you know, there is an inherent coercion to having a state. Just like if you, mm-hmm. I mean, but you, you both of you are like, we need a state, right? Yes. But we all acknowledge that there's an inherent coercion in every part to of having a state. To enforce purpose agnostic but rules you, but that point, allow interactions for private parties. But the point is, is that if you don't, if you, if you violate those laws, we all agree that if you violate laws, you go to jail. Yes, fraud, and you, torts, and you, and that crimes. there is coercion in that. We yes. all agree that you yeah. have to live in this authoritarian place called jail and do what men with guns say. We all agree no, that there but, is an but inherent. But the rule of law is fundamentally different than authoritarianism. No, but, Authoritarianism is not the rule of law because it's the arbitrary decree no, of the people in I understand. power, rather I, than a system that creates expectations of future abilities. I'm just saying that there's a there's a coerciveness to to the state that is inherent yes. to the state. The law is violence. Robert Cover. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Okay, there's just an inherent. I would coer- hate to debate you. You just you, you have <laughs> I, so many quotes. In, I, I, I think you I, have photographic memory. Hey, for once, I wasn't the one that brought up the Leviathan. <laughs> was I Hob- have before actually. What, <laughs> was Hobbes um, brought up in Goodwill Hunting in the argument in the bar? I don't remember. I think it was. I think that's where I heard it before. That maybe there we go. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, do you also believe that private ownership of gold should be outlawed? No, I don't. I don't actually think that because we're off the gold standard and we don't have gold clauses in our contract. So but, the problem but, but in the thirties is the we're not in the Bitcoin the, standard. Please stop interrupting. Go, like go. Um, uh, we in the thirties, we had gold clauses in our in con, all contracts. Yeah. So you could get payment in dollar or in gold. And so what was happening is uh, there was, you know, uh, FDR and wanted to take the U.S. off the gold standard because we needed to uh, when you have deflation. Um, people were starting to demand payment in gold. And if you have deflation in commodities and deflation, you know, anybody that makes anything isn't there, you know, anything that they're going to have to pay their debts in gold, not in dollars. And when, you know, that would just drive everyone into bankruptcy. So it had to take us off the gold standard and eliminate those, the gold clause contracts. Okay. That that's, you know, it it would be the equivalent of, is is if, if everything were in, um, where all our contracts were but obviously in dollars, but then you could question, you if, could if you, you ban if you, you ban Bitcoin, Bitcoin either if you ban Bitcoin because we're we we're in a hypothetical world where Bitcoin clauses are now appearing in contracts, wouldn't gold clauses just reappear and then you'd have to ban gold, right? I yeah, I don't think that you should be able to have uh, Bitcoin clauses in contracts. I mean, I like I'm not I'm pointing I'm to not, a whack-a-mole problem though. You say we don't need to I'm ban not gold an expert now. In, I'm not. I'm not. This isn't something no, no, that no. I think about a lot. I'm just saying. I'm just telling you my fear. Yes, is that these these systems are used to undermine the state instead and, of revitalize and, and, our democratic. And my counter. Yeah, and, yeah. and my. But I understand why. why I understand where you're coming from. Like I get why there's so much frustration. My counterclaim is quite simple. And it's you. You you outlaw Bitcoin. Wait, you don't agree with me. You outlaw Wait, Bitcoin. This is weird. The you next thing will me? be gold. You outlaw gold. The next thing would be Ethereum. You outlaw Ethereum. The next. This becomes an endless series of crises that government through democracy is supposed to address because it's trying to address things that are not well, purpose I, I, neutral. Me, it's not creating standard clarify. laws that create I, I an even playing field. I don't know field. about Bitcoin, but it's choosing Ethereum instead to point to certain technologies and is, certain things and say, now you're out, now you're out. The end result is chaos. It is the war of all against all because expectations are destroyed by constant changes. D- discretion to simply ban the thing that's a threat to the thing that you like right now, if it's the dollar, if it's Bitcoin, if it's gold, is discretion to destroy the rule of law. It's not the way America is supposed to work. It's not our way our democracy or our constitutional republic is supposed to function. 
We can't just I, go through I, an endless series of I feel like we should end crises. there. I feel like I want to just like do the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> and start singing no, patriotic no, listen, listen. songs. And You have to go. I do. You do have to go. I'm going to do a final five minutes. I have to go do the Pledge of Allegiance yeah. and sing patriotic songs. I'm going to do a final, I'm going to do a final five minutes with Matt, but... Uh, you'll hear it. I'm, I'm not going to throw you under the bus or anything because we largely agree. But I just, I've just got a couple more questions. Yes. But I consciously got to go. Thank you for coming. We, this could have gone on uh, uh, a lot longer. Perhaps we will have it. But, but okay, so just, 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 just to finish off. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot. By the way, that was a lot of interesting. That was really interesting. Uh, I want to talk to you more about Hobbs. Okay. <laughs> I want to look up Hobbs if it's Hobbs in Goodwill Hunting. Um, so. <laughs> Why? Why don't we just try? Why don't we just? What is the risk of leaving Bitcoin out there? Because listen, listen, people listen to this are instantly going to dislike your point that you yeah. think it should be banned. No, it's I know that. It's not going to be popular, that. but it's also good. I want to hear these points. One, I want to hear why, I, I, and I'm not immediately going to dismiss them. It helps me uh, sharpen my own tools with with defending Bitcoin. But what is what is at risk by letting Bitcoin exist? Whereas I think it's a very. I don't think it's a large majority of Bitcoins that want to get rid of the dollar or replace the Fed, or well, maybe the Fed, but they don't want to get rid of the dollar. Some do, some I, don't. I, 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 at the risk of making myself even less popular, what I'll say is I think that Congress should directly run the Fed. Okay. Uh, I think that, you know, because, because I think it should be run democratically. Okay. I think that the the having a group of oracles, uh, it, you know, fancy oracles who say, "Oh, we decree that this is we're going to print more money this way or that way" is ridiculous. We should have it should be done through our democratic institutions. Okay, but what 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 is our risk of allowing Bitcoin to exist? What is that you fear happens? I mean, I think just you know, standard. Uh, well, a couple of things. So you got your standard problems with. Uh, that you have in any unregulated system, which is various forms of fraud um, and money laundering. Okay. And the, which, and we need fraud and money laundering to go through our regulated systems. <laughs> um, uh, then you have the national security apparatus. Like if, you know, one, we, we have sanctions on, say, North Korea to prevent yeah. them from developing nuclear weapons. And Bitcoin enables them to get around that. And you know when the the use of sanctions, the use of uh, of the dollar as a geopolitical tool, is something that the U.S. exploits. You might say that that's a bad thing or a good thing, but uh, but Bitcoin undermines that. And that when you when you start to develop systems outside of the the regulated um, uh, outside of the regulated financial structure, then you enable a bunch of uh, essential. What are essentially piracy type of type of arrangements? You're basically setting up a, a, a shadow pirate state outside, and then all the things that happen in a shadow pirate state happen. And pirates are kind of cool, right? But you know they also do things that are are dangerous and uh, and and problematic. And I, and I so I just think it's yeah. you just you just create more disorder. Now, the reason the the argument for it is, well, I mean the regulated things that were. You know that we're operating under are creating plenty of of awfulness and disorder themselves, and so maybe we should try something different. And I'm sympathetic to that to that point of view. Yeah, because I I, I doubt the trajectory of the uh, North Korean nuclear program has changed because of Bitcoin. It's just I, my my assumption is whatever sanctions exist, whatever the U.S. government puts in place, there will still be an active uh, North Korean nuclear program. Unless there's some kind of deal struck, like was struck with Iran previously, yeah. um, but what 
what I would say is I wouldn't want to punish 330 million Americans or 70 million British people or whoever through the rest of the world. I, love, I want to punish them all. But I, don't I wanna, just want I, to punish them all I, for, I, for no reason. I don't want to punish them to, due to the North Korean nuclear program. You know, I don't want them to not have access to Bitcoin and its benefits because of the North Korean nuclear program. I don't want the you know, 3 million Salvador, Salvadorians who now have access to banking services not to have that because of a North Korean program. I think the North Korean program should be... I don't think... It, I think it's a. I think it's an unfair argument against everyone else having financial liber, uh, liberty. Well, I mean, this is... So when I, when I went... When I said, well, what can you use this for that you couldn't... You know, this is, goes back to the mail email example. And... You know, I mean, I, it's like when you look at this and you say, well, people can already transfer money. You can use Western Union or other other mechanisms. It's like, yeah, it's really expensive. I mean, I'm an anti-monopolist. And so what I see are a bunch of middlemen in our payments. Our payment yeah. system is super corrupt and they just they just take huge chunks of, of um, money that they shouldn't. You know, it should be basically free to send money to anyone um, with all of the, the checks and, and the technologies there. It's an, yeah. You can do it through a centralized database. It doesn't have to be a distributed ledger. What makes Bitcoin interesting and compelling is that it's much harder for a state to stop it. Um, I So it's, it's hard for me to say, yeah, people shouldn't have access to a cheap way to send money when they want to. Uh, I just think that that what we need to do is get our is that there are significant downsides to that because when what you're essentially and what you're essentially doing is you're crippling the state and while you know is it crippling the state it is it is i mean the the sanctions do work right i mean the anti money laundering when you do actually use it it works because the state is powerful and it, you, it can stop things that we we want stopped we can deal with collective action problems and when you create an alternative mechanism to move money, then you enable people who are outside the the who want to stay outside the state's grasp. A, like a bunch of uh, you know, a lot of people are who are who are great who want to stay outside the the state's grasp. But there's a, a you know that's just a ton of of criminal activity, authoritarian, um, strongmen, and just like they want to use this for their own. Purposes and so, so I mean, you could make the argument, and this is what the anarcho-capitalist argument. Well, you know, crime is just a—it's just a political definition, and so it all of there's there's really like moral relativism here. It, it you know, it, what 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 is the U.S. Who is the U.S. to say that what we should be doing is is democratic, and what some strong man is doing is authoritarian? And I I respect that point of view, but at the end of the day, if you believe in that there is a difference between a democratic system and other forms of systems, you need to empower democratic systems and strengthen them and disempower other forms of, of political organization. So I don't see Bitcoin as a technology that's innovative. I see Bitcoin as a political project. So interestingly, I think Bitcoin... And, and by the way, yeah. I apply this like to all cryptocurrencies. I don't think that, you know, when... when Peter was saying, oh, then you'd ban Ethereum, then you'd ban... Like, I think I, it should all be gone. I, I don't have an interest in those other ones, yeah. but I actually, I think, I understand how you've come to your conclusions and uh, and I can appreciate them. I I think sanctions is a tricky area. I'm, I, I'm not well-versed enough to debate it with you, but yeah. I think there's plenty of uh, arguments for how uh, sanctions have punished the wrong people. Totally. Uh, look, Venezuela is a great example. Yeah. Maduro uh, 
I don't think he's struggling to live the life he wants to live. He lives a, a opulent life. Uh, while the um, the people of Venezuela are, no, are I'm, struggling. I'm, I recognize I'm defending, um, in many cases, indefensible institutions. Right? Yeah. I, I am, I'm defending the idea. Um, and so I, that's why I'm very sympathetic to the, to but, the arguments here. And, and But I think Bitcoin can make democracy stronger. Well, I hope you're right. Um, and I'm I'm open minded. It's not yeah. something that, and it's been really fun to to learn about it and talk to you guys. He's a and, tough guy to debate. <laughs> well, you know, he does it for a living. So, yeah, um, but it's, but it's, but I have the belief that it makes democracy stronger, and especially now that we have people within Congress, uh, uh, active senators, and uh, uh, also people who now. Uh, uh, you know who are running for Congress, who are interested in Bitcoin, and they're learning about Bitcoin, and they they understand what it is. Like they've really gone down the rabbit hole. But I think that most of the problems you talked about earlier, a lot of the problems you talked about earlier, they all feed back to the money, the incentives and money. And the big thing, the great thing about Bitcoin is it changes the incentives for money. So I think it makes democracy stronger. So. If there were a, a kind of a political movement that were to say, look, we want to put pressure on the regulated financial system because we think they're doing a bunch of things that are terrible. So we're supporting, you know, Bitcoin, but at the same time, we're also supporting reform of the Federal Reserve to make it more democratic. We're supporting making the regulated financial system work better by uh, preventing, you know, fraud and money laundering for real and no, you know, constraining uh, banks so there aren't uh, bailouts and promoting financial inclusion and saying, you know, Western Union, you are a monopoly and we're going to, you know, create rules. And I mean, if that were the case, right, where you had effectively like a group of, uh, if the if the political movement were saying, we need public utility rules on our existing payment system to make it fair, transparent, not allow criminal activity. And until we get that, we're going to channel energy and effort into Bitcoin and into these and I realize you're not yeah. into the other stuff, but like into these alternative channels, I would I would be a lot more sympathetic to the argument. I, I what I what I think is dangerous is the idea that you can, you know, you all the only thing to do is to put pressure on that system and weaken that system by focusing on building out these alternative channels. But again, I think it strengthens. And this scene, by the way, Pat yeah. Toomey, who's probably the most ardent pro um, crypto guy in the Senate is also the one who is the most aggressive about defending the independence of the Federal Reserve, defending Wall Street, defending the concentrated corrupting banking system. So this is the the politics here, like the, the people that were fighting against the corruption in 2008 and nine and 10 and saying, if you're gonna get these bailouts, you're, you're not, you shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, we, we need jail time, we need breakups of these banks, we need, those are the people who are the most aggressive about being suspicious of Bitcoin and the people who of were course. who were super aggressive about, we need these bailouts, we need to protect big banks, we need to protect the Fed are the ones who are most excited about Bitcoin. So the, the politics here, like, that's not like the politics coming out of Bitcoin, uh, coming out of sort of the crypto world. I don't think that's where like the people in the crypto world are. Like, I think there's a lot of good faith people going on there, but I think that the people who are getting, who are exploiting this, are um, are like Mark Andreessen. He's like behind a lot of this, and this dude is is you know he's a Facebook like monopolist, and there's a lot of cynics. Out there that that don't they're not they're into reproducing and amplifying the problems that we have in our regulated system, but just with an unregulated system that they control. That's where I'm like, 
that's the real worry here. Yeah. I don't see that like pro-democracy, pro-reform uh, argument coming out of this community that I think actually has a real deep sympathy for liberty and democracy. Yeah, so Mark Andrews is an interesting one. Uh, Chris Dixon from A16Z has been very, very much pushing the Web3 narrative right. and trying to drive that narrative around tokens and uh, what we call shitcoins, really. Yeah. And that is something that they want to be able to control. They right. can't control Bitcoin. Mm. You know, they they That's have no control. Yeah, yeah. And so they push these cryptocurrencies where they can issue a pre-mine and they get to just have more control over it and they get to control how they profit from right. it. The only way they can profit from Bitcoin is to build a company that builds on Bitcoin mm. or buy Bitcoin. They can't get access to the Bitcoin itself uh, by creating the currency, whereas all the other currencies, they That's get... That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah the and, wildcat banking type of thing. Yeah. And, and it's bullshit. And none of us in Bitcoin are falling for it. So that's why I don't care about these that's, cryptocurrencies. Yeah. But I come all the way back to your first point. You know, you are... Well, the Miami coin is the thing that I... That's what I'm I, not interested in Miami. I, well, interviewed, so, I interviewed Francis. So so I, that's when I, when I noticed, you know, the Florida and Citibank. Right? Yeah. It's like, okay, Miami coin's coming out. Okay, that means there's some there's a, there's a real... And this is a sad thing for Bitcoin. It's why it gets wrapped up in yeah. all of this stuff. And a lot of Bitcoiners are like, Bitcoin, not blockchain. Bitcoin, not crypto. Mm. We like we make a big effort to separate it because they are they are different things. But I just come back to your other point, but being anti-monopoly and pro-liberty. This is why I believe in Bitcoin. It, right. it is anti-monopoly. It is pro-liberty. I believe it will make democracy stronger. I believe it will make uh, politicians more responsible and go to serve their constituents while their constituents serving them. No, that's, you know, I hadn't thought of, I, I don't know that much about this this yeah. community, so it's been really fun to talk to you and learn. Uh, I, the, the, you, you've given me a, a lot of, a lot to think about the Bitcoin, not, not, uh, Bitcoin, not crypto. Yeah. You, in, uh, and that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I, I understand what Bitcoin is yeah. and I understand what it's for. A lot of the, you know, uh, smart contracts and crypto and there's all these things you can do and I like haven't really seen what you can do with it that's practical it's not like it's you're not it's not innovation like building the, the semiconductor right mm -hmm. it's not like it's you know it's something that you know they're innovating different ways to use this thing that they're innovating on which is it's like circular so i i i have a hard time understanding what that's for but it does make sense that you would make the distinction between bitcoin and the rest of the crypto world and it does make sense the politics of the rest of the crypto world because you can you can control those new things that you're creating whereas you can't control bitcoin so that's helpful to think well about. the crypt, crypt a lot of these cryptocurrencies are really just shitcoins right? they, well they're just what they're, they're just the extension of what we already have right. i mean ethereum is moving to proof of stake which is essentially a keynesian model and yeah you know, we're not going i'm not going to get into the debate about different economic models now one, because of time, and two, because I don't have the skill set to do it. There, there's people far better than me. But me, just as a simple guy, keeping it very simple, I like monetary competition, and I believe that can make democracy stronger. And I believe in liberty like you, but I believe within a democratic framework. I get a lot of shit for it. There are a lot of hardcore anarcho-capitalists who want to see the end of the state, want to see the end of the Fed, they want to see the end of the dollar. They're allowed. I believe they're allowed minority. I think most people. Yeah, that's they're they're fringe. That yeah, doesn't really. And, and and I respect them. And you know, I wish more libertarian libertarians would go into politics because I think libertarian ideas are brilliant. There's a lot of stuff that's sound theory there, and that would be a good pull against you know conservatives and a good pull against Democrats into a, a, another idea of thinking about economics. But but for me, you know, it, it, this just comes back to I'm like you. I'm anti-monopoly and I'm pro-liberty. Yeah, I mean, the one other thing, and I, I make a prediction about what I think is going to happen in the crypto space, just based on you know what I, I, I think that it's floating on the same bubble as, 
you know, a, a lot of our society is right now with with you know Tesla and and uh, you know the, the stock market and all. I mean, people sort of see it as a, as an asset that's kind of distinct from the rest of our monetary order. But I actually think all of this stuff is tied into this speculative fervor that is pushed by the Fed, and that when when this this you know era of speculative fervor comes to an end, that a lot of the air that's in this the crypto kind of world is just it's just going to dissipate. That, yeah. that's that's kind of I mean I know this is not an unusual opinion. Like I think Charlie Munger just said it the other day. But like that, I, I think this stuff is really tied into the existing regulated financial system, even if people think it's not. Well, listen, we can do this again anytime. We can do it six months to a year. If you go further down the rabbit hole, if your views change, you want to talk again, you can let me know. And I'll leave you one other thing to have a think about at a geopolitical level with China banning Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You have to think about why would China ban Bitcoin as authoritarian state? It kind of makes sense. Well, the US is essentially the the opposite of China. It's meant to be the most free country in the world, pro-liberty. It should actually embrace Bitcoin. And if if America embraces Bitcoin, it gives us strength against China. Yeah, I mean, I could we could go on, we could definitely talk about that for yeah. a while if you want. Um I would I would have a different point of view, but we'll okay. leave that for another day. Well, listen, it's great to have you on. I really appreciate it. It's like it's a tough gig coming in against the Bitcoiners. Uh they they disagree with everyone and they want to fight back and argue back. But I think it's one of the healthiest things we do is get people in like yourself who bring other ideas and challenge us. And I think it's always good for us to check ourselves. So I really do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, very, very. Uh, I You've been incredibly generous with your time and, and I, I had a really good time. So thanks for having me. And right. I, hope I, I hope I don't make people too mad. No, they, you, know, you won't. Like What will happen is the people on Twitter will be mad. The people who write to me in my email will be, thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it having a different point of view. And that's the way it works because the people who, those people don't want to say on Twitter because they don't want to get yelled at. Um, tell people where to follow your newsletter. Yeah, so my newsletter is uh, it's called Big, and it's m a t t s t o l l e r dot substack dot com. So Matt Stoller Substack, um, it's a, a Matt Stoller Substack uh, newsletter, and um, yeah, my book is Goliath: The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. It came out a couple of years ago, but still good. Well, I'll subscribe. I mean, I would I would love another time to talk to you. Maybe it's a bit, or even on the show uh, about my hate for Amazon, and I still use it. But like this, the, the the way we're going to this kind of dystopian future where every business is just being forced into a warehouse where people are just, or robots are just moving shit around. I just think it's fucking horrible. I still use Amazon, but I think it's fucking horrible. Yeah, I mean, everybody, you, I use Amazon. I mean, it, 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 I it's a monopoly. That's the yeah. point of a, a, a monopoly. It's like you you, ha- you kind of have to use it. If, if you buy on eBay, they'll you often will get the boxes will say Amazon because, the, because people, third-party sellers, store their stuff now on an Amazon warehouse. I'd love to talk to you about Amazon. It's a fascinating um, creature of policy. Well, maybe know? next time in DC, we'll do a show on poli- we'll do a show on monopolies. I like, talk about that. I'd, I'd love to learn sure. about it. I mean, we do fringe economic ideas on the show anyway. It's not just Bitcoin, so maybe we'll do that. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, really thanks, appreciate man. it. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon.